Hello everyone, it's Fred Kumalo of City Press and we are here on your lovely space called Books and Beverages. Welcome, we haven't done any recording this year. The last time we did a special recording was last year, so welcome to the new year. Although it's also advanced already. Anyway, to kick off the, the new literary year here at Books and Beverages, I'm joined in the studio by uh, one of South Africa's illustrious, yet probably not very well-known writers, and not in the popular sense, but one of the enduring intellectual minds who has uh, written a series of uh, memoirs. They have, um, he has um, carved himself um, a place in the minds and the hearts of readers in South Africa and internationally through these memoirs that um, that are a kind of a depiction of a South Africa that has been lost to many. So these uh, memoirs, a series of memoirs, is very evocative of the Johannesburg that some of us only hear about or see in the movies or read about in books about the era of uh, the drum generation, Sophia Town and so on. Uh, Dennis, welcome. First of all, welcome to... Uh, books and beverages. Thanks, Fred. Very good to be here with you today. Great. And um, you are no longer in South Africa. You left South Africa. Um, I know where you are, but um, our listeners out there do not know. Just tell us a bit um, about your growing up in South Africa and how you left South Africa and why you left South Africa. So, in a word, uh, I grew up in South Africa. I spent my first 22 years here. I did a degree in social anthropology at WITS. And then my father had been a political prisoner for nine and a half years when he was released at the end of 1973. The whole family went to London. I spent about a year there and then I went to Paris. I've been living in Paris since 1975. I've worked there as an actor. I've worked there as a teacher. And now I'm, work I'm living there as a full-time writer. Great stuff. Thank you. And uh, when Dennis uh, refers to his father, uh, his father is one of the most resilient um, uh, political writers and thinkers, uh, Baruch uh, Herson, who has written one of the most memorable um, um, pamphlets or dossiers that he, he wrote was the, it relates to the story of Umkata Shingo, the, um, the, the mutiny in 1984 at ANC camps in Angola. It's one of the most memorable things that he wrote about the ANC in exile. But um, of course, we are not talking about uh, his father today. You're talking no. about, yeah. But, uh, but he would be very, very happy to hear you talking about that. He was triumphant in publishing wow. work about the ANC in exile, yeah. Right, thank you, thank you, yeah. Because I read, I read it as a pamphlet long before it was published. It was uh, being circulated in the underground circles. And I read it, and uh, I had, had been exposed to, to the story of the, of the mutiny through talking with friends who had been there, who had, had come back from exile. Or, in fact, the first time I, I got to hear of it was in 1990 when I lived in Canada, and people were saying, be careful who you talk to here, because I was hanging out with uh, ANC comrades and PAC comrades and so on. And they started telling me things uh, that were happening out there in exile. 
I went there to study and I wasn't an exile at all. I can't I can't claim those struggle credentials. But the work that um your father did was amazing when he when he investigated and he pushed for this story to be put in the public purview. An admirable uh, piece of work. The, the book has since been published by Jakania Media in South Africa. Now, let's get back to your, to your writing. So Dennis has, um, as I said earlier in the introduction, has written a series of, uh, of memoirs, very thin, very uh, funny. I found them funny, even the titles themselves. Uh, the one is called Remember King Kong, in brackets, The Boxer. King Kong was Ezekiel Lamini, the boxer, the, the famous boxer who killed some people and uh, he ended up uh, committing suicide, jumping into um, a dam while he was in prison at Louisville. So there's his, uh, Dennis's, um, uh, he uses the story of King Kong as an entry point into, into the evocation of his childhood in Johannesburg. You, do you want to say a, a few words about that particular book before we move on to the others? About that book and about the whole process, perhaps, of writing out of memory. Yeah. That was my second book. My first was The House Next Door to Africa. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And each time it's been a different process. I started writing these books in 1986. Of course, I didn't realize I was going to be writing one after the other like this. Right. We left South Africa unwillingly. And uh, uh, about 10 years later, I started wanting to bring it back on the page while I was living in an apartment in Paris. Mm. So the first one was like a series of photographs of where I'd been, uh, photographs in words. That was the house next door to Africa. Yes. This one, I remember King Kong, was a series of brief, Pointillist memories, one after the other. It was actually an act of mourning for my father, who died in 1999. Mm. And uh, I had a rush of memories of South Africa coming back mm. uh, in the wake of his death. Mm. And so I published these one memory and then a blank space and then another memory, and it became a kind of obsession with me to be remembering and saying hello again to South Africa. Yes. And each book after that has had a slightly different structure. Yes. We walk straight, so you better get out the way. And White Scars, each one a different way of thinking about memory and a different way of remembering the strangeness, the, also the beauty and the absolute despair of the apartheid years. Uh, each one, I was not quite sure what the structure was going to be, but each one turned out entirely differently. And I discovered that when you remember something, it looks one way, but then some years later, when you remember the same thing, it looks an entirely different way. So actually, you can spend your life writing memories of the same yeah. situation, and it won't be the same book. Sure, sure, sure. From from a, a reader's perspective, um, uh, uh, the first two uh, immediately after they, they were published. Now I uh, was rereading them in the wake of the publication of your latest book, My Thirty Minutes Bar Mitzvah. So now uh, I'm reading them as a reader, 
and I see a continuity. Uh, when you started writing them, did you have a, a, a plan, a destination, or was it something just happening spontaneously that you write this and you pause maybe a year or two later, you start something else, but it is, it is the subconscious is telling you to continue the journey that you started with the previous book. I think you're right about the subconscious. It isn't a conscious plan that I'm going to write this book now. Uh, if we come to the, the last one you've mentioned, uh, my 30-minute bar mitzvah, um, I certainly didn't know that I was going to be writing a full book. Uh, I started with just the idea that this situation, which I'd actually mentioned briefly in my first book, uh, I should do something more with it. And it was like a tiny little thread that I started pulling. And I showed, I don't know, 20, 30 pages to my wife, who is a ferocious critic. And she said, if you're going to write about this subject now, you better do better than that. <laughs> so I started pulling the thread further, exploring it. It wasn't easy. It wasn't painless. And then the thread started pulling me. And that, for me, is the good moment when it's the book that is taking the writer, not the writer that's taking the book, because the book has got to something, say something more than the writer knows when he starts writing or right. she starts writing. Yeah. And I want to say immediately to you that I do not want to speak about the central incident in this book because it's a mystery, and I want the reader yes. to feel that he or she needs to know what's going to happen. Yes. I don't say so yes. in the first half of the book. Cool, cool. So let, let's just delve uh, into the book without giving the story away. So the book, I got the copy about two weeks ago. The book was is being launched. We are, launched, we are on, uh, Dennis is on a, a tour, a book tour. Uh, just tell us where you've been and where you're going to be in the next uh, few days. So I have been to exclusive books in Hyde Park. Mm. I've been to the Bet Emanuel Synagogue in Forest Town in Joburg. I'm going to go to the Simonstown Books on the Bay Festival, mm. 9th and 10th. Uh, and then I'm going to go to the Dorp Hotel in the Burkap, and I'm going to go to Wordsworth in Seapoint, and the Book Lounge in the middle of Cape Town, and Cork Bay, and the Jewish Literary Festival. I'm also going to go to Grahamstown, Matanda, I'm going to do some seminars at the university there, and I'm also going to launch the book at, I can't remember the name, Equenzi Museum, I think it's called. Okay, okay. Yeah. Have you done VITS already? I've been to VITS, yeah. and I've done a seminar there, but with the student protests, there weren't very many people in ah. the seminar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there were armored cars outside the Great Hall of the university, but we got in and we did the seminar, nonetheless, in the thick of the troubles. Yeah, sure, sure. Now, uh, just going through the list of places you're going to, to visit, you say you're going to, to go to the Bwokap. Bwokap is a very Muslim, uh, is a Muslim community. So I'm curious as to what triggered, or what, in, what, yeah, 
what is the motivation behind that? Because the book is very, it's about Jewishness in a way. Well, <laughs> I hope the book isn't only about Jewishness. Sure. I hope the book in part is about a rite of passage and the need of a child at the age of puberty to mm. go through some kind of meaningful ritual yeah. that marks the transition from boyhood to manhood. Yeah. And I hope, I deeply hope, and that's one reason why I'm so glad to be speaking to you, that we go beyond any kind of religious framework. Exactly, yeah. The book yeah. isn't about religion at all in many ways. It might be about spirituality. Sure. Uh, but in fact, to answer your question, I'm going to the book up because I have a friend who has a connection with the hotel, the Dorp Hotel, and I'll be there on the 13th of uh, of March in the evening, mm. talking about the book, I'd go anywhere. Okay. The, anywhere the book takes me, I'll go. It's a means of transport. Great, great, great. Speaking of uh, transport and distance, uh, before we started recording, uh, you said something very interesting about distance. You said Paris is so far away, and you said not just about we're not talking about the physical distance. Do you want to unpack that for, for, for our listeners? I'll just tell you that I took an Uber from Melville to here to Ramburg and that I always get in the front seat and I had a long conversation with uh, Isaac Lamini, the driver, <coughs> and perhaps I shouldn't have mentioned his name, but he was angry, not talking about the big corruption and load shedding, but just talking about the way in which some people think that freedom is a license to do anything and that they do not have respect for him as a driver and that they should be respecting their space mm. and uh, their living space and that really people are misusing uh, they're misusing their freedom, he said, mm. here in this country. Mm. And talking about his job, he said he wants commitment, love, and responsibility in the car for his client. Now, this is the positive end of the story for me, that somebody should be saying uh, that to uh, me. Uh, listeners out there, Dennis is reading from a notebook. He's, <laughs> he is that incisive, you know. He takes notes. He's a proper journalist. <laughs> yes. But, yes. you know, and we got pretty close in the space of 20, 25 minutes coming here. And this kind of warmth and openness, but also the anger, and uh, as well as the weather we were driving through, I love this weather. And the, just the raw kind of fumbling innocence and openness of people here, despite the troubles, or maybe also because of because the troubles, of all of this is far, far away from Paris, where I would be sitting in the back of the taxi if I took one, which I don't have to because public transport works. works and Paris, you can yeah. walk through yeah. the streets yeah. without any sense of danger <laughs> like that, or many of the streets. Yeah. And uh, everybody is very discreet, and they, they leave you alone, sometimes far too much alone. Mm. Uh, it's a very sophisticated, codified culture. It's not like this rough and ready atmosphere here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You always, I mean, you've been there forever from my perspective, but you always come home. 
Uh, do you see that as coming home? You're, you're, I mean, writing about South Africa. Home for me is in Paris, just outside Paris, mm. but it does feel very familiar. Mm. I hear my accent becoming a little bit stronger, mm. and I am, after all, South African. Mm. I am what I've called a long-distance South African, mm. but I would never deny that. It's so, just part of me. It's in my blood. Okay, okay. What, what triggers uh, your writing process? Uh, some, some writers would be reading a, new, a newspaper article and then uh, it sparks interest in that particular subject and then they start writing. Others uh, might, might overhear a conversation and so on. What triggers, generally, what, what triggers um, you as a writer? Different things. The other day I saw a desperate man in the metro in Paris, someone who was smoking, you're not allowed to smoke in the metro, someone who was trembling and pale and gaunt, and I just had to write down what happened to him and about the, the black woman in the metro who gave him a bag of food without thinking instantaneously like that. Mm-hmm. And he started eating it in front of everyone, mm-hmm. where you don't eat in public in the metro in Paris. <laughs> and I, I just had to get home and write about it because it had made such a strong impression on me. But that doesn't happen that often. It's a necessity for me. If I'm writing a book, it's a necessity. It's not an act of luxury. Mm. It comes out of a feeling that something needs to be spoken of. It, in my case, it has often been very personal. Uh, it's had to do with relationships. In the case of this latest book, it has to do with my relationship with my father. I'm now writing a book which has a lot to do with my mother. So these are very personal books in a way. But as I said earlier, I always hope that the story can reach beyond myself and my own circle. Uh, who knows where it's going to go? It's going to be published in England and America, so that means somebody, somewhere, a publisher, a publisher thinks that the story can carry beyond the boundaries of this country. I'm yeah. very glad about that. Great. But it is not an intellectual idea. It's an emotional, physical impulse mm. that takes me into my writing. I feel that writing is a physical act, that you need to wrestle with words, you need to have a sense that you're crafting them and that they're taking you from one word to the next, from one sentence to the next, from one paragraph to the next until you get to the last one. And that you can go back and read it again and recraft it. This book took me six years. It's not 200 pages. I did not write it continuously, but it's been through more drafts than any book I've written before. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, the physicality, physicality of it is, is interesting. Because that's what um, uh, James Baldwin says. He says when he writes, he feels like a boxer fighting. Um, should he stop writing, he would die, he says. It's, yeah, it's... Um, it's a need, it's a compulsion, a physical compulsion to do this thing. Is that how you feel as well? Yes, <clears throat> in the dark. Mm. So you can't see the jaw of the person you're trying to box. 
but in the dark, going <laughs> word to word, yes, until yeah. you come out with wow. what you've got. Wow. Can I can I read the beginning of the book? Perhaps? Oh yeah, sure, please, 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 by all means. The book is called My Thirty Minute Bamitsa. So, uh, for the benefit of those who are not um, familiar with the concept, what is a bar mitzvah? So the bar mitzvah, mm. or for a girl, it would be the bat mitzvah. Mm is the rite of passage, that means the ceremony which you go through in a synagogue at the age of usually about 12 for a girl, usually about 13 for a boy, in the presence of your family and friends, uh, usually with a rabbi and perhaps a chazan who's the person who would sing. And then uh, you would have to read a portion of the Old Testament and in Hebrew, and uh, then after that, there would be, uh, you would get to the end of it, there would be a feast, presence, uh, joy on the part of the uh, participants that at this, this person has gone from childhood through into adulthood. Mm -hmm. But the bar mitzvah that I'm talking about in this book has got absolutely very little, extremely little to do with anything that I've just described. Mm. And as I said, I'm not going to tell listeners what it is, sure, but I would sure. like to read the beginning yes. so that you can feel enticed to find out what it is. Exactly. Of course, I had a bar mitzvah. It took place on a cool, crisp afternoon in Johannesburg on the day I turned 13 towards the end of August, 1964. There were three other people present, or five, depending on whom one chooses to include. Five, let's say, the men divided from the women according to the time-worn tradition. There were no photographs, no gifts bought or made for the occasion, no singing or elevating sound, unless one counts the bellyfuls of steam rising up from the iron grid between the flagstones of the pavement across the road. But the steam hardly made a whisper, and anyway, I cannot be sure that I noticed it at all. The ceremony lasted precisely 30 minutes, as had been agreed on well in advance, not a second longer. One of the people present announced the end in a voice as blunt as it was relieved. Did I cross the threshold into manhood on that day, as one is at least symbolically supposed to do? I don't know. I doubt it. But I did, at least in the wake of this event, begin to understand a number of things I had not been confronted with before. The person who might have been called my teacher would surely have wanted me to learn these lessons in an entirely different way if I had to learn them at all. But there was no time beforehand and not a moment left over at the end to express any regret. Wow. Lovely. So that's the opening to this beautiful, powerful uh, memoir, My 30 Minutes by Mitzvah, uh, Dennis Harrison. So that, I'm curious, you've been sitting there and you keep coming back home through your books and uh, as a person with a, a political past, not in the party political sense uh, per se, uh, you're watching this country hurtling from one crisis to the next and the next, and this is your country, as you earlier told us. Have you 
ever felt the the urge to write a book about the whole grand design of the country, um, even if it's a, a, a fictional account or fictional observation or a long essay, just give because we are sitting here inside the belly of the beast, so to speak. Sometimes we can't see what's happening. Uh, uh, we can't see the, the, the whole picture because we are inside it. You are, you are out there, as an outsider, you have a, a God's view of the country, so to speak. You've got the distance, both physically and emotionally. Has it ever occurred to you to maybe confront, okay, confront is a wrong word, to, yeah, to do a book about South Africa, be it a novel or a long essay, a critique or an analysis of, 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 of where we are as a country and giving your historical um, links to the country and uh, your understanding of where we've been. And you, you do that very admirably in White Scars, your earlier book, and uh, where you account, uh, where you give your account of, of, of Shabville, among other things. Um, so I'm just wondering aloud if it has ever occurred to you maybe to write uh, this kind of book. So I'll start where you've ended, actually, with this book, White Scars and Sharfville. So the section of the book which is about Sharfville deals with me as a boy uh, at the age of 13, 14, going into my parents' room. My father is in jail. The book is uh, hidden because it's a banned book that I'm looking at. It's called uh, uh, Shooting at Sharpville, Ambrose Reeves, Reverend Ambrose Reeves. And uh, in the middle of this book, I find the photographs of the protesters on the 21st of March, 1960, around the police station, and armed, and then the police are on their armored cars, taking guns, rifles, and shooting at them as they run away, the protesters, and shooting them in the back and killing some 69 and wounding some 180 of them. Mm. But my writing isn't really an analysis. It's more the experience of a boy in the white, English-speaking northern suburbs of Johannesburg trying to understand what is going on at Sharpville through the photographs, not really fully grasping the full political picture at all, but understanding that there's something really serious going on. And also, and also the presence of death for an adolescent growing up and the importance of that and seeing these people alive in one photograph and then dead in the next. Mm. That, mm. This, the mm. impact mm. of that, mm. the physical impact of mm. that. It's not for me, it wasn't for me again. It was, it's not an intellectual act and I wouldn't pretend to be able myself to make an analysis, I don't feel like a political analyst. I'm not, in that respect, anything like my father. Mm. I need to write out of experience. I need to write what I know, mm. 
before even understanding what I know before I get it gets into the brain and starts sorting itself out into abstract ideas. And I need a smaller canvas and a more distant canvas. I feel here in Johannesburg now people are completely saturated with what's going on. It's a, it's, there is saturated in a way that reminds me of the way that we were saturated with apartheid in the 60s and 70s, but saturated more immediately with the load shedding. So in the middle of dinner and suddenly there's no more light, no more electricity to heat the next course. Uh, the violence just outside the gate and the gate having to be closed and locked and then the, all the systems of security, etc., etc. And then you go and you have a meal with people and that's what they talk about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's no other subject of conversation virtually until I, the outsider, open my mouth and say, can we speak about something that's going to allow us to breathe, please? Because yes. I know yes. we've, you've all got these suitcases. Can you just put them down and speak about something else? There's still relationships in the world. There's love. There's imagination. There's, there are other countries. That, all of these, you know. So personally, the fact that I've been involved in these memoirs also shows you that I've needed the distance that memory gives you. I need to look back at what has happened. Yes. Memory, of course, doesn't allow you to accurately uh, chisel out what happened mm. at a particular time. Memory is an artist and it's mm. playing around all the time with what went on in the past. Mm. But I need that. I need transformation all the time. And that's the thing. One of the things about people here now at the moment, they feel... When is the change going to happen? How can the change happen? Which government's going to give it to us? It's stuck. I know it's stuck, and I'm taking notes. I'm taking notes. Mm -hmm. But the first thing I think about when you ask me that question is not the big situation at all. It's one of the most striking moments I've lived through here uh, during the last few days. It's a theatre performance by a man called Ntlantlam Mahlangu. Mm -hmm. He wrote, he did a performance called Chant. It was about a squatter camp that he grew up in and it's about the very particular actions on the moment when his squatter camp was... Uh, where, where was what, this? Tolo, what's it called? Tolokwane? To, to, uh, in, the, in the 80s. I can't remember the name, unfortunately, but I have written it down. Um, and he was in that squatter camp. And he does it in such a way that your imagination takes you not only into the squatter camp, but into the life of, I don't know how old he was, maybe a 10-year-old boy, uh, with notably a boy that had been, uh, excuse me, a dog that had been brought to the squatter camp uh, by his grandmother from her white employers. Uh, who had left the country and she was left with the dog and he's got this dog in the squatter camp and then comes the, the, the shooting, uh, probably from Nkata people. Mm. And um, the performance starts off, he's got a pot of flour on his head and a rock in his left hand and a rock in his right hand and he smashes the pot on his head and the flower falls over his body and it's an unforgettable image. Where was this performed? It was performed at, is it called AFTA, 
the film school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, okay, in, okay. A, in a theatre there. Yeah, okay. Now this for me, this act of transformation of his own memory theatrically and this image of the pot and the flower across his half-naked body, he's wearing a loincloth at that moment, is something uh, unforgettable to me. I need to see something of the order of the unforgettable imagination in order to start writing about it at the moment. Okay, okay. For example. Okay, great. Thank you, thank you very much, Dennis, for, for being um, so gracious as to visit our studios uh, in Randberg. Uh, it's Fred Kumala of Books and Beverages, people. Um, it's a great year, 2023. We are looking forward to interviewing more writers, uh, um, welcoming more writers to come to, to, to the studios and share their writing journeys with us. So on that note, thank you very much. Uh, join us uh, for the next installment of uh, Books and Beverages with Fred Kumala of City Press. Bye-bye. Until next time.